Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about judicial abuse. I feel like saying hello a second time because this is the first brand new material on inappropriate conversations in quite some time. Going back to January of this year, and it was right after January of this year that I hit a long string of talkback episodes. And the first two of those talkback episodes were uh, dealing with an article that I called 10 Areas of Agreement About Abortion. This uh, Today's episode is going to tie into that material because the topic of judicial abuse especially here in the month of September of 2021, ties directly back to the issue of abortion and how we choose to deal with it and cases where we deal with it inappropriately because as a nation we deal with it selectively. I've spoken about abortion many times in the past on inappropriate conversations, but the best place for me to point to past reference material is actually those two talkback episodes in January. One was released on January 27th, the other January 29th, as they were part one and part two of a single stream of thought. I also, on those episodes, posted a SoundCloud link. I am still on SoundCloud as IC underscore Greg, and I put the two pieces without the different drummer segments of those episodes of Inappropriate Conversations. Episodes originally released, I believe, in 2011. I just put them together and spliced them as if they were a single uh, article or a single speech, and that's available on SoundCloud. Again, my stream is IC underscore Greg. The most recent thing I put on SoundCloud is probably the three and a half or so long uh, complete file for the entire novella, Some Assembly Required. Uh, Similar idea in 2020, I released several episodes of Inappropriate Conversations that were chapter by chapter kind of serializing that particular neo-surrealist novella. I put them all together into a single almost audiobook format, and that's up on SoundCloud as well. Since I seem to have slipped into some housekeeping, it might make sense for me to talk a little bit about other ways that you can interact with Inappropriate Conversations. Despite the fact that it's been quite some time since a new question has been posed through Walk the Earth, Um, Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth both have pages, independent pages, on Facebook. WTE Podcast is probably part of the URL, the actual link, for the Walk the Earth podcast at Facebook. And Inappropriate Conversations is also a page on Facebook listed as a cause. On Twitter, I interact with both those shows under the same handle of IC underscore Greg. And IC underscore Greg is, of course, the same one for SoundCloud, too. It's still worth noting that maybe the best way to get a comprehensive look at everything that I do under the heading of either one of these podcasts is at inappropriateconversations.org. Inappropriateconversations.com does a redirect, but I started off with the inappropriateconversations.org website thinking that this was in more of a cause than in any way sort of a commercial venture, so to speak. But that has got everything in it. Now here about two or so years ago, I made a jump to Spotify, and at that point in time, I decided that the starting point for podcatchers for 200-plus episodes of Inappropriate Conversations, more than 50 or 60 episodes of Walk the Earth, that I would need to start at a certain point in the calendar. I picked a moment in time in the middle of 2017, and that has been the beginning of what's available on the streams. But inappropriateconversations.org is a website that literally has it all. And there still is intent for me to carry on with both of these podcasts. So if one is set aside for a period of time because I'm not ready to deal with those questions, the next question for Walk the Earth, for example, was going to be something about um, you know, getting back to attending church in person after more than a year of not doing so. I haven't hit that moment yet. So that question may still be coming up soon for Walk the Earth. We'll see. Even if I set both of them aside for a period of time because I want to... Uh, focus on talkback episodes instead, well, that's fine because, again, there's a couple of hundred episodes that predate this 2017 starting point. Inappropriate Conversations began in March of 2010 or 2011, 2010, and Walk the Earth began somewhere in the latter part of 
August of 2013. So there's a lot of material that predates the starting point for, well, just exactly how many episodes does it make sense to maintain on the feeds of various podcatchers. When I'm talking about judicial abuse, this also has been going on for quite some time. It kind of seems to me that one of the things I did uh, even before the 2016 presidential election in an episode released on uh, Labor Day weekend of 2016 called Constitutional Crisis, beginning to look at things like, um, you know, the U.S. uh, Republican-led majority in the U.S. Senate refusing to fill an open Supreme Court vacancy for the better part of a year, truth be known, as it all played out. No matter how you look at it, it would be an act of grace to say that that seat was, wasn't was arbitrarily held wide open for at least nine or ten months. And again, in truth, from the death of uh, Justice Scalia to his replacement was more like a year. And, you know, dealing with the problem that's represented by that and what I didn't do, I don't think, in Inappropriate Conversations number 188, Constitutional Crisis, I don't think I did a good enough job of talking about the fact that some of this judicial abuse at sort of the governmental congressional level had been going on long before that in terms of the selective filling of judicial seats and non-filling of judicial seats, creating a situation where the concept of a free of a speedy trial and a fair trial, you could argue that it's been compromised, compromised in some measure by simply lacking the uh, political willpower the patriotism to fill open seats in a collegial manner. If the president who wins a presidential election happens to be a Democrat, then I would expect the Republicans who may at that same point in history be in the leadership position of the U.S. Senate to confirm any judge who isn't deeply, deeply flawed or offensive. And I don't mean flawed or offensive in that that person voted for somebody else in a presidential election that I didn't vote for myself. By flawed and offensive, I don't mean that person has a personal ideology that is not completely in line with mine. By offensive, I don't mean that person's religious views or who that person's married to is, you know, inconsistent with my own decisions I've made in these very personal aspects of our lives. By offensive, I mean things like a clear inability to accurately cite the U.S. Constitution, a track record of not understanding the law at all, Uh, The inability to read and write and spell and punctuate in the English language uh, with any degree of acumen. And what we found maybe since the 1980s, very early 1980s, is that you can find a lot of examples of a fair number of judges appointed by Republican presidents who failed this standard of, let's call it, literacy. Whether that be judicial literacy or whether it be even command of the English language. This has been a problem for quite some time. And you see probably not none of that, but way less of that has been historically true in my lifetime from presidents who've been elected as Democrats. So if somebody was to come along and say, listen, we've got to definitely slow down the path of judicial appointments because the track record we have for appointing judges is seriously, seriously flawed. And again, I mean flawed in a fundamental way, like understanding the law, understanding the Constitution, understanding the English language. Not flawed in a way of, well, that person vote would support somebody who votes different from me. Or that person would marry somebody that I, I wouldn't choose to marry myself. Or I don't like the color of that person's skin. Whatever the reason might be, that's not the standard I'm talking about. And, and what we've done is we've have fewer seats filled on the judiciary than we're supposed to have filled. We've held open seats in manners that are frankly, again, I think the best word I can come up with it for is is unpatriotic in uh, scandalous, perhaps even borderline treasonous ways. And that has created some of the other issues that has led us to the place that we're at now, where in the state of Texas, they've recently passed what has to be the single most inept and yet ironically so far successful abortion ban in the history of state legislators trying to work their way around a Roe versus Wade judicial decision that they disagree with. And so here we are. If this episode is to some degree or another kind of about this Texas law, well then so be it. It inspired me to sit down and record a brand new episode of Inappropriate Conversations for the first time in several months, so... It's got that going for it. But one of the things that I did was I kind of connected the dots between the details in this particular Senate bill and some experiences that I've had in my lifetime going all the way back to high school. 
So our different drummer today will remind me of high school. I'll speak about that when we get to that part of the show. But before we get there, I'd like to talk about an initial experience I had as a uh, wannabe journalist, a high school journalist, I suppose might be the word for it, and an editorial page, an editorial layout that we did successfully, controversially perhaps, but successfully for the high school paper, dealing with a law that was being proposed and ultimately passed in the state of Oklahoma in, I want to say, the very early 1980s. Now, obviously, if I'm sitting down to record recalling memories that go back to the 1980s, we're talking about 40-plus years ago, uh, and I'm not 100% sure whether the events I'm going to describe were 1979, 80, 81. The truth is the wheels of legislation move slowly enough that there's probably some element of truth in all of those. And I'm going to try to avoid specific names, um, with maybe one exception, because, again, the chance of getting things wrong all those years back kind of makes sense. Part of the inspiration for the page, certainly the visual for the page I'm talking about, pretty sure was put pen to paper by my friend Dan, year older than me, still part of the journalism department in high school, where he had a picture of somebody sort of in a back alley wearing a trench coat, uh, the kind of like a, like a drug dealer vibe was kind of the deal. And um, was holding his coat just a little bit slightly open, like he was going to show you like the variety of different drugs or weapons that you could purchase from him for street prices. And the caption read, Psst, hey buddy, you want to buy a blender? Cheap? Because what the state of Oklahoma had done, or was about to be doing, what they certainly ultimately did was pass a law that actually made it, in some cases, illegal for people in the state of Oklahoma to own things like blenders, measuring cups, scales, even particular kinds of um, glassware. The state was trying for years and years to find a way to legislate out of existence head shops. To me, this is ironic. I made a visit to Oklahoma a year, two years ago maybe now, to attend a funeral. Um, you know, a family relative had died and uh, the kind of the agreed upon instructions, you know, sort of the person's last wishes. Uh, no surprises. It was a kind of well-established that a funeral pot, plot had been purchased and that he wanted to be married next to his first wife, that sort of thing. So we're making the trip back to Oklahoma. And what I saw while we were visiting the two largest cities in the state in the process of attending memorial services in, in one metropolitan area and getting ready for like a, a graveside service in another metropolitan area was the incredible number of outdoor advertisements billboards, street signs, so forth, advertising uh, medical marijuana, prescription marijuana, various CBD products. Um, you know, basically there was almost a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Dr. Grass can hook you up with a prescription. I mean, the the city, the, the cities that we visited had gone just absolutely nuts in terms of uh, trying to find ways to get marijuana into people's hands, quote unquote, legally. I say, quote unquote, I, I may be selling this thing short, that those advertisements may not be at all controversial, that this may be actually perfectly legal, and that the state of Oklahoma has made a change in its approach to uh, marijuana in particular, or maybe drugs in general, that would you know kind of be a record scratching on vinyl if you compare it to what I experienced in the early 80s. Now, I'm telling this as somebody who's never used an illegal drug. So I never went into a head shop for the purposes of buying drug paraphernalia, for the purposes of using drug paraphernalia. It is true, however, that sometime in this period of the very early 80s, when this law was passed, I did go to a head shop and bought a tiny little bong. I don't remember, like three inches tall or whatever. Again, not with any intent of ever using it. I was simply flaunting what I thought was a ridiculous law, a ridiculous, pointless, and ineffective law. Because what Oklahoma's legislature was trying to do, Oklahoma's legislature with a mix of Democrats and Republicans, but but with majority Democratic leadership. I mean, I don't want to paint this as a uh, conservatives or regressive Democrats or not, because at least at that point in time in the state that I lived in, Democrats were just as regressive as Republicans. And that may be, to some degree, true today. We're talking about a very red state. If you look at you know maps from the perspective of the color scheme that somehow we've arrived at for how do you, who did you vote for is a question. But in an effort to shut down head shops and shut down head shops at all costs, the 
a candid conversation I had with somebody from the office of Dan Draper, who was the Speaker of the House in, in the state of Oklahoma, went something like this. Young man, thank you for calling. You're making a very fine argument that this law probably is unconstitutional. I disagree with you that the law is ridiculous on its face and almost comical, and I don't really appreciate the fact that your newspaper is intending to mock it as openly as you say you're intending to mock it. But I'll grant you that there probably is a pretty good chance that some elements of the law could fare badly in the courts, that it might be unconstitutional. But that's what the courts are for, you know. Their their little lady was sort of the vibe, like like a pat on the head. If I hadn't been a high school journalism student, if I'd been a college journalism student or a a recently graduated from college, um, you know, sort of journalist... I don't even know if I would have gotten that much of a response. Uh, it's, but it might have been less patronizing, but it probably wouldn't have had the same amount of time granted to me in the conversation. But the gist of it was that the opinion of the Speaker of the House, according to his staff, was that didn't really matter if this particular bill passed and led to lawsuits and got overturned in the courts. Because the legislature of the state of Oklahoma was taking a stand against that terrible drug paraphernalia. Now, a few things about the, the law itself, that the law you know, had to be written in such a way that you really couldn't outlaw scales and measuring cups and you know, lighters and blenders. And you know, the, the, the goal was anything that you might use to take an illegal street drug and process it for use, anything that might turn something into a smokable form or a, um, a baked form, like uh, cooked into brownies or what, anything that might happen. So the state had basically decided that they needed to make illegal ovens, pots, pans, you know, again, anything, uh, mix, mixers, electric mixers, anything you might use to cook up a batch of pot-laced cookies had to be illegal in the state of Oklahoma. But to do that, to not just shut down what I guess in the future would be your local, um, your local Bed Bath & Beyond or your local Crate & Barrel or you know, the container store or all that other sort of thing, there had to be the presence of drug revenue, of drug residue. So in other words, when you've already got somebody that you can arrest for the possession of illegal drugs, we're now going to tack on all these other things related to head shops and so forth and so on, not because we need that to press charges against somebody who has purchased drugs or drug-making material and is also using common household items to process them for, for use personally or for sale. You don't need any of this new law to deal with somebody who has broken drug laws. And without the presence of, of at least significant enough trace amounts of the drugs themselves, whether that be cocaine or marijuana or something else, without the, the presence of the drugs, then the law read in such a way that the common household item stayed a common household item. And in, in other words, you're going to be in a situation where if your teenage son invited people over to the house for a party while you were, you know, visiting grandmother in the hospital out of town and, and you as a parent didn't even know your kid was throwing this kind of a party, and maybe your kid didn't even know the drugs would be involved, but if somebody showed up to the party with a bong and with some, with some pot and smoked some of it but accidentally left some of it behind... And for whatever reason, some twisted set of circumstances, you were, you know, you had police officers in your home looking for clues to try to resolve some issue. You were the victim of a burglary, perhaps, and you invited the police over to help you document what was stolen and see if there's anything that you can do to help maybe apprehend the burglar, get your stuff back. But now the, uh, the marijuana in your house that isn't yours even if the police officer is 100% persuaded that it's not yours and not even your son's or your daughter's, that no one in your family is responsible for that residue, that, that trace amount of leftover pot that gets stuck in the couch cushions or whatever, now you have suddenly got a criminal enterprise in your kitchen. And this effort to shut down head shops by stopping them from selling pipes and bongs and bowls and all sorts of other stuff, wrapping papers, whatever... To shut down that entire line of business, this is why I think it's kind of obvious to me that it was a, a Democrat-led conservative state, because the Democrat-led conservative state was all in favor of trying to shut down businesses to put their stamp on the morality of what they wanted their government to stand for. 
Whereas a Republican-led state might be more inclined to leave the businesses alone and legislate against individuals. We'll get to that in a moment. But the point of what that conversation with this with the uh, you know, representatives of the Speaker of the House was, was that they kind of thought that it would be okay because the sorts would sort it out. The, the courts would make it all right. That if there was a problem, the courts would solve it. I remember writing a letter directly to that same Speaker of the House. I don't believe I got a satisfactory answer, no surprise there, but I wrote a letter that basically said, you know what has to happen before the courts sort this thing out? Let's be generous and say this doesn't have to go all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Let's say that it gets solved at either the state Supreme Court level or a uh, initial district court level. But you've got somebody who's been arrested, who's been charged with something, who now has to hire and pay lawyers, who has to chew up what back then would have been at least weeks, probably months of your life. Now, because of judicial vacancies and other sorts of things that have clogged up our court system, it could be years of your life. Again, having a lawyer that you are paying from time to time to, you know, write motions and to take testimony and to defend you in court. And then the process of defending you in court has become longer now than it ever was before. But even back then, if the process was truly, truly speedy, you're still talking about a significant outlay of cash. And if the uh, higher courts overturn the law, throw the entire law out and find you, therefore find you exonerated on all charges... It's not like the Speaker of the House of the, uh, of the legislature in Oklahoma is going to pay for those legal bills. It's not like the police officer who arrests you is going to write you a letter of apology. Um, the best you could do nowadays, I guess, would be start a GoFundMe page. But back then, that concept didn't really exist in the same way. And you were basically saying some random lottery loser in the state of Oklahoma whose rights were being violated by a ridiculous and comic law was ultimately going to have to defend himself to the point of bankruptcy or the brink of bankruptcy in court to get the quote-unquote right thing to happen. And that leads us to what's going on in the state of Texas. I want to jot down some notes from the uh, from a TexasMonthly.com News and Politics article called Your Questions About Texas's New Abortion Law Answered. It was written September 9th, 2021 by Peter Holly and Dan Solomon. And basically, the, the gist of it to me is the questions. How does this new SB 8 law work in the state of Texas? SB 8 allows any private citizen in Texas or elsewhere to sue anyone who performs an abortion in the state after an embryo's cardiac activity can be detected. Call it six weeks. It also allows any private citizen to sue anyone in Texas or elsewhere who, quote, aids and abets anyone in getting an abortion in Texas after that period, or anyone who intends, italicized word, intends to aid or abet that process. Now, calling the law a six-week ban is a slight misnomer because SB8 doesn't look at gestational age, but the law cares about the presence of cardiac activity, which is typically around uh, the six-week mark. So, how, how are aid and abet and intent defined? Aid and abet isn't defined at all in the law. Intent has a legal definition. Think of possession of illegal drugs with the intent to distribute. This is where I began to make that connection to a very old memory about buying a blender cheap and the recklessness of a state passing a law that it knew would be unconstitutional, which has become so common in the last 30, 40, 50 years that we almost take it for granted these days. But back to the article. There are a few cases, there are very few cases where the mention of intent of doing something without taking any action creates criminal or even civil liability as it does under SB 8. We do not yet know how the courts will define intent in the context of SB 8. And that, to me, is a real problem. If the law is so vague in this area that someone will have to redress a defense of themselves against a civil or criminal, you know, judgment, then you've created the exact same situation that the state of Oklahoma did by making it illegal for a nursing student to own medical dictionaries and other sorts of textbook materials if someone in her house might have used cocaine and have residue on their their nightclub clothes because she can't legally learn how to be a nurse or a doctor with those books. She only would have a defense against herself if she actually was a nurse or a doctor Ridiculous laws. Ridiculous laws that put real people in jeopardy 
of being sued or in the, arrested or in this case sued. Can you be sued if you get an abortion after cardiac activity is detected in the embryo? No. The law specifically exempts the person who is getting the abortion from being sued. This is why the uh, past podcast, 10 Areas of Agreement About Abortion, is so important. If only, hey, part one, the first two or three questions, kind of clears up what is so seriously flawed with this entire legislative approach to a judicial problem that has allowed the U.S. Supreme Court to commit an act of judicial abuse by not intervening when they had the opportunity. Could you be sued for donating to an abortion fund that provides financial or logistical help to Texans seeking abortions? Yes. Let me just dwell on that for a moment. Yes. The same conservative mindset that says that money is speech. Think Citizens United and uh, you know, super PAC funds and all those other sort of things. Have now basically written into law in the state of Texas some, you know, some amendments, some some words in the law that make that form of speech criminal, that political donation, in other words. Now, the writers of this article from TexasMonthly.com concede that a lawsuit may not work. That's up to the court. But anyone who wants to sue someone who donates to an abortion fund has now standing to do so under SB8. So when I talk about judicial abuse, this is what I mean. Judicial abuse is a situation where, selectively, this law is encouraging people, where the issue of abortion is present and relevant, to sue where they have no standing, I guess would be the way that I would word that. That you would like to think that a traditionally conservative approach to the judiciary would be fewer lawsuits, less um, judicial activism, less lawyers getting involved, Less all that stuff. But this law very, very specifically and very directly on the issue of abortion has basically said, you know what? We'll grant, as conservatives leading the Texas legislative process, that you know some random person in Illinois doesn't have any basis to you know, pursue a civil litigation, a civil lawsuit against somebody who they don't even know who got an abortion you know, in the Rio Grande Valley, you know, near the near the Mexico border in Texas. But the legislature in Texas has decided, yeah, we think that person ought to be able to have standing to sue, even if they can't possibly show a connection to the case, cannot possibly show that the case in any way directly damages them. Frankly, it would be gymnastics of, again, almost darkly comic effect for such a person to even try to show indirectly that there was some kind of damage to them over a decision being made by a woman in a part of the country that they don't live in when they don't know the woman and they're not impacted by it at all. And the state has basically said, yeah, we think that you ought to have a legal right to declare that your standing to sue is true, even if you can't show any of the things that not just in American judicial history, but throughout the, you know, the different inspirations for our Constitution and our rules of law. We're talking about going back a couple thousand years in terms of this making no sense whatsoever and inevitably going to clog up the courts. This is true no matter what the U.S. Supreme Court eventually decides to do, if they eventually decide to do anything, because the U.S. Supreme Court has, among other things, taken a complete pass on this by deciding to just quietly, overnight, almost in an embarrassed way, if you ask me, if I were to anthropomorphize the behavior of the court as a single body, um, their actions indicate a certain amount of cowardice and shame by just saying, yeah, we're just going to let that happen. What they're letting happen is opening up a Pandora's box that if this particular law, if this particular approach to the law were to stand, then you could have situations where I, as somebody who didn't know anybody who was the victim of the Las Vegas mass murder a few years ago, where you know somebody opened fire at a country western concert and you know killed and maimed you know in combination more than a hundred people, um, that now I, as somebody who wasn't related to any of those people, who doesn't have any sort of like stockholding interest in the in the hotel or the casinos nearby, I'm I'm a great example of somebody who has no standing. 
But if this approach to the law makes sense, suddenly I've got standing. And not only can I sue the person who did the shooting, not only can I sue the hotel that gave that person a room, I can actually sue the bellboy who carried his bags up. Well, even that kind of indirectly makes some degree of sense. The bellboy who carried his bags up maybe could have said, hey, why is this bag so heavy? What's going on here? I mean, um, seems like you're bringing a complete arsenal up to your room. Ha ha ha. No, but you could even sue the person who gave that guy a taxi ride from the airport to, to the hotel. Or the person in the kitchen who never saw him or met him, but prepared his breakfast order for room service that morning. It becomes ridiculous to a comic degree. Because we're not just saying, hey, what if I wanted to give money specifically to help women who live in Texas get out of the state of Texas to have an abortion performed somewhere else because Texas has basically just overturned Roe versus Wade, at least during this period of time where the Supreme Court is, again, being abusive by failing to do their job. It also could mean, you know, anything else. Uh, the, the, person, the person in the parking garage where the woman or her partner parked the car when she went in for her appointment, that person, by taking payment for the car being parked there, could be sued for $10,000 by any random person living in the United States of America. And you would like to think that most of these lawsuits would end up being thrown out, or that if they got all the way to a judgment, the juries would do the wise and intelligent thing, but none of that pays for the legal bills, for the loss of time, for all the other aspects of things that can happen when you find yourself being targeted by, by predatory civil lawsuits. And for us to pretend that somehow a predatory civil lawsuit is not the same thing, or in some ways better than the state just kicking your door and arresting you, because the state could never, in good faith, I don't believe, maybe if, maybe Oklahoma in 1980 could do it, but would never pass a law that makes it illegal to be uh, to take money in a parking lot toll booth from somebody who parked their car while they were going to an appointment to get an abortion. You're not going to see the state you know, slap handcuffs on somebody and blacken up their fingers to put them into the system on an arraignment for charges of aiding and abetting a murder. You're just not going to see that. This law, though, written so broadly, at least in principle, opens up that gate. And it does so very selectively. I've always been consistent about this. Even going back to you know that same period of time in the 1980s, I was never a fan of buffer zone laws that created protective spaces around just women's clinics and abortion clinics. It was not that I didn't see the need for those buffer zones. I did. But my thought was that the law shouldn't be written in such a, ridicul a ridiculously specialized way. Why don't we just make it illegal for people to to chain themselves to the doors of dentist offices to make it impossible for people to go to the dentist. If for some reason your particular wacko cult religious belief said that teeth cleaning was a sign of the devil because whatever, right? That the laws should have been written, not specifically to put a buffer zone around the most toxic kinds of protests to prevent the worst of the worst and the most toxic kind of protests around abortion clinics, but it should have just simply written more broadly to say that it applied to all medical, dental, psychiatric care facilities, that the behavior that was unacceptable outside of an abortion clinic would be equally unacceptable outside the orthodontist's office, that at some point there becomes a limit where um, directly obstructing people's ability to go into a business that's legally open shouldn't be allowed. There should be a limit to the amount of verbal abuse and even physical violence threatened against people for going into their, their dermatologist's office. That there was no reason why the law couldn't have been written broadly enough to basically say, listen, there's a principle here that this kind of protest behavior that was going on in the 80s and 90s is unacceptable and we need a buffer zone around it. That was my worldview. If Texas legislators are proud of the law that they've just passed, then they should extend it to everything else. That any citizen anywhere in the United States should be able to sue anybody associated in any way with the, the manufacturer, the sale, the R&D, or the development of guns if somebody gets murdered by, uh, by a gun. And I don't have to have standing. They can just be some, somebody I read about in the newspaper. I don't have to know them. Um, their death doesn't have to have any negative impact on me emotionally, spiritually, economically. Just apply the standard of the Texas law 
to something that would directly impact the NRA, and then I'll believe that you're not engaging in abuse. This is a reckless, abusive law that anybody with even a scintilla of ethics and integrity would not have passed. And if the current majority of the United States Supreme Court had even a scintilla of ethics and integrity, they would have set it aside. They would have granted the stay. Or they would have just flat out, on its face it's so obviously unconstitutional, call it what it is and strike it down. There's lots of ways they could have dealt with it besides ignoring it. And that act of ignoring it is, in and of itself, a case of abuse. I connect the dots very directly between what happened to, you know, the uh, head shops in Oklahoma. By the way, none of them actually ended up closing because the law, as unenforceable, I think the head shop's attitude was, I don't want to be a test case, but I will if I have to. At least to my knowledge, none of them closed. None of them that were close to the record stores I like to visit closed. Let's put it that way. And yet here we are in a similar situation where um, the legislature and even the Justices of the United States Supreme Court are failing to recognize the very real cost to the citizen who actually has to use the courts to defend themselves if the court becomes the only safety net available to this kind of recklessness. And that in and of itself is a form of judicial abuse. The one thing the courts won't do, which I find very interesting, but it's true, is they've retreated from the idea of actually evaluating the intellectual acumen of the arguments that are being made before them. This seemed very obvious to me when Hobby Lobby was defending its decision to not cover contraceptives or even to threaten to fire people who independently on their own were using contraceptives. In in that particular case where the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately was siding with the business's right to control the health decisions of its employees because We've set up this insane system in the United States of America where employers are the ones who provide access to health care. It's economically true. If you measure access to health care from a perspective of the availability of insurance and the affordability of the care itself. But at no point did the justices feel like they had the right to evaluate the religious claims being made by the lawyers speaking on behalf of Hobby Lobby. After all, Jesus never said anything about contraception. And if you dig deep and you peel back layers, you might find that Jesus actually did perform a form of hormonal, um, sort of hormonal contraception in the course of his ministry when providing a miraculous cure to a woman who had not been able to stop menstrually bleeding for decades. The, uh, the way that that might happen in America today If you had that condition and you went to the doctor and you, a God-fearing American woman visiting a God-fearing American doctor, might prescribe for you the exact kinds of drugs that are the active ingredients in the birth control that Hobby Lobby was saying that they should be able to ban from use in their entire workforce because God says no. When God not only says yes, God showed the way. It all depends on how you read the Gospels. But my reading of the Gospels at least is there inside the storytelling. It's as real as the words on the page. Hobby Lobby was never challenged to even come up with a single example of where Jesus himself spoke against the use of hormonal birth control. And of course they couldn't, because it's not there. So here's my issue and i don't know whether it makes it even makes sense to think that the courts could weigh in on this but a methodist pastor named david barnhart had written something i don't know how recently it always pops up again when these kinds of abortion related issues bubble up but it's worth reading and sharing again i don't know that i shared this one on the inappropriate conversations page i might have inadvertently stuck it on walk the earth or my personal page instead but I was able to find it because I've recently shared it. And it goes something like this. The unborn are a convenient group of people to advocate for. They never make demands of you. They are morally uncomplicated, unlike the incarcerated, addicted, or the chronically poor. 
they don't resent your condescension or complain that you are not politically correct. Unlike widows, they don't ask you to question patriarchy. Unlike orphans, they don't need money, education, or child care. Unlike aliens, they don't bring all that racial, cultural, and religious baggage that you dislike. They allow you to feel good about yourself without any work at creating or maintaining relationships. And when they are born, you can forget about them, because they cease to be unborn. You can love the unborn and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, or privilege, without reimagining social structures, apologizing, or making reparations to anyone. They are, in short, the perfect people to love if you want to claim you love Jesus, but actually dislike people who breathe. Prisoners, immigrants, the sick, the poor, widows, orphans, all the groups that are specifically mentioned in the Bible, they all get thrown under the bus for the unborn. Words by David Barnhart, and words that in many ways have been echoed by our different drummer this week, George Carlin. George Carlin put it this way, and he's going to help me earn the explicit tag for this week's episode of Inappropriate Conversations. Quoting Carlin, Boy, these conservatives are really something, aren't they? They're all in favor of the unborn. They'll do anything for the unborn, but once you're born, you are on your own. Pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine months. After that, they don't want to know about you. They don't want to hear from you. No, nothing. No neonatal care, no daycare, no Head Start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you are pre-born, you're fine. If you are preschool, you're fucked. George Carlin, in a typical George Carlin style, words shared in, I believe, an HBO special going back to 1996. When I was looking up the best available quote for this, what I found was people saying that the saddest thing is that George Carlin's words from 1996 are absolutely just as applicable today as they were then because we as a society have not grown. I've said it before, we spent the better part of 50 years arguing about abortion. We haven't listened to each other enough to make any progress whatsoever. And part of the reason I think for that is that progress in the form of compromise, of coming together, of changing our position in a way that respects the needs and wants of other people, particularly other people who have standing, not the new Texas version of civil litigation standing, but real standing. Well, that's just off the table. Because the one thing that you can say is absolutely true about the polar extremes of any issue, especially this one is, the last thing that they will entertain under any circumstances and at any cost is any form of compromise whatsoever which is why you get scorched earth kinds of approaches that will screw up the court systems for years and perhaps completely disconnect the United States system of law from the thousands years legacy of precedent that we've been following since the formation of our country. What the state of Texas has done, in other words, is as bad as being profoundly treasonous. So Carlin, later in his career in particular, found a way to speak incisively and directly to issues in a way that almost always made people uncomfortable. He started out early on as someone who was a fan enough of, of Lenny Bruce that he was at one point in time uh, taken to jail with Lenny Bruce when Bruce was arrested for being obscene in a show and Carlin refused to cooperate with police who were trying to take witness statements and didn't appreciate Carlin refusing to show them ID. He was, in other words... Uh, comes to us through a Lenny Bruce paradigm, and that's absolutely where he kind of wound up at the end of his career. I would describe at least one of the last couple of specials he did as being in some ways a really great talk, but decidedly not funny, or at least not funny in a traditional jokes perspective. However, I never personally lost my enthusiasm for Carlin. There's a few reasons for that. As somebody who has a free speech focus and uh, 
at least in some way or another, casually thinks of himself as being a writer, you know, the stances that Carlin took and that actually generated Supreme Court case activities related to words you can or cannot say on television, or words you can or cannot say on the radio about words you can or cannot say on television, was in essence landmark. Two things happened from the FCC versus Pacifica Foundation case, which went against freedom of speech, against um, Carlin's stand-up comedy being able to be played on the radio when it's, you know, light outside. Um, And it's interesting because in one way it sort of created a backlash. It created an in-for-a-dime-in-for-a-dollar kind of scenario where if radio was not necessarily going to be a way that stand-up comedians could ply their trade, they would need to find other methods. Um, There were probably no really burgeoning successful comedy clubs where I lived in the mid-1970s. After this case, uh, comedy club as a concept became not just a coastal thing, not just a New York-LA thing, but nationwide. And the other thing that happened is, because this case kind of laid down a rule about when you could or could not have naughty words on the radio, not long after that case, uh, Frank Zappa came out with his Joe's Garage album, which, had there been explicit language stickers at the time, would have carried an explicit language sticker. But if you happen to be somebody who listened to rock radio late at night, 10, 30, 11 at night, um, the new Frank Zappa album could be played. Whereas that same album, released before 1978, probably could not have been played at any hour of the day. But the Supreme Court case in question defined something, created a clearer window where before the law had been vague. I didn't necessarily start off with Carlin at the seven words you can't stay say on TV vibe. I started off with Carlin from his 1977 album On the Road. And that's interesting because from reading some of his biographical material on Wikipedia, in fact, I haven't done him that favor. I'll do the Wikipedia thing right away. George Carlin was an American stand-up comedian, actor, social critic, and author. Regarded as one of the most important and influential stand-ups of all time, he was dubbed the Dean of Counterculture Comedians. He was known for his dark comedy and reflections on politics, the English language, psychology, religion, and taboo subjects. His Seven Dirty Words routine was central to the 1978 United States Supreme Court case, FCC versus Pacifica Foundation, in which a 5-4 decision affirmed the government's power to censor indecent material on the public airwaves. That's just your first paragraph from Wikipedia. But later in the article, it kind of outlines that there was about a four or five year span where releasing albums had prior to that been part of Carlin's growth into what we now think of as, as his persona as a countercultural comedian. He had an interruption there. Uh, after On the Road, there wasn't an album until the early 80s, and, and it turned out that he was very privately, very quietly dealing with health issues. Uh, one or two heart attacks during that span of time, perhaps some other problems. And it's kind of a nice, gentle reminder that back in that period of time, it was possible for even a very public figure like a famous stand-up comedian, George Carlin, to deal with a medical problem like that with some degree of privacy, where that's absolutely not true today under any circumstances whatsoever. So with that background in in stand-up, in acting, in comedy, in criticism, he's written a couple of books, uh, maybe three if you count the posthumous release, that... Uh, I probably will cite him as a different drummer on the right navigation bar, the categories section of inappropriateconversation.org, as being both an author and performer. I don't think I can go to musician, um, but and I don't I can't go to film direction, but I will go to performer because I think in many ways that represents the breadth of what he was able to do pretty well, including being guest host on the Tonight Show, primarily for Johnny Carson, but even in the years prior to Johnny Carson. My parents, I don't think, were familiar with George Carlin in 19... I'm going to call it 1979-80. I know I didn't buy the On the Road album brand new from a traditional retail record store. Pretty sure I picked it up in the used record store. And I might have picked it up on a lark. It's not that I didn't know who Carlin was. Uh, Friends down the street, even as early as maybe um, early junior high school, late elementary school... I had older brothers who'd played, we'd played some of the albums that have the seven dirty words on them and all that. I'd heard his material, 
but I, I hadn't gone out to seek the On the Road album, in other words. To me, it was the George Carlin album that was available at a used record store at the price that I could afford based on the money I had in my pocket. That was kind of the reason for it. But I've always had a soft spot for it, because that album did a couple of things that were really important. First off, I don't think I'd ever heard a stand-up comedy album that had like an entire side devoted to a single topic. Uh, maybe every track but one on the second part of the On the Road album deals with death and dying in various humorous ways. Everything from the concept of wouldn't it be great if, if uh, at the time of death you got a two-minute warning? And what would you do if you had two minutes where you knew for sure you were going to die at the end of the two minutes? And includes part of his bit as saying, well, you know, maybe you stand up and you give the most impassioned speech you'd ever given on a topic, but you argue the opposite view of what you really truly believe, but you do it with with verb and with gusto. And, and at the end of the speech where you're making this argument that no one had ever expected you to give before, you say, and if what I'm saying is not true, may God strike me dead. And then you, you know, two minute warning, time's up, you fall over dead. Just a great comedy bit, well presented, and a real solid, to my mind, a really solid comedy album. My parents were not a fan. And I think the way I would describe it, if I was to try to put it into one sentence, is that I was dealing with parental concern that was way more concerned with words than ideas. I was dealing with parents who themselves were trying to struggle to figure out how to deal with a kid who had now reached a point of maturity where you could see the trajectory he was on. And this kid, this son of theirs, was way more concerned with ideas than he was with words. And what in the world are we going to do about it as parents? The positive thing is that, uh, you know, the album wasn't broken or burned. We weren't, we weren't those kinds of people. Um, it's probably still in my album collection downstairs. I've got that kind of a soft spot for it. But it did lead to conversation, and that conversation, I think, was a good thing. It was probably the first time that my mother and father heard from me in with a level of passion that could have ended with, and if what I'm saying is not true, may God strike me dead. That to be so obsessed with which words are allowed to be used and which words are not allowed to be used, that you tune out the message itself, you've made a huge mistake. The counter-argument for my parents was... Well, if you just choose better words, then you'll broaden your audience, and then more people will hear you, and then you won't put people off, and you won't be offending folks. And I, I just looked at him and said, I think we're going to find that there are times when it is necessary to offend people. This podcast is called Inappropriate Conversations for a reason, and it doesn't always carry an explicit tag, and I'm not always using words that are... I don't always pick the most colorful language when a, when a, a different option is available to me. Part of that is perhaps the way I was raised. Part of that is perhaps me listening to the argument that maybe the audience would get would stay a little bit more broad if I was less, you know, confrontational, less profane, uh, less descriptively, uh, even obscene at times. Um, I even when I try to deal with very difficult questions, try to deal with them in a scientific way, I'm more likely to use a you know, word like fellatio than blowjob. That's just, you know. It's, it's scientifically accurate. It's true in a way that the other one, over time, we'll see how language evolves. Maybe the other one won't stay true. I've told this story before on past podcasts. My parents had a different definition of the word making out from the 1950s than, than me and my siblings had for the words making out in the 1970s and 80s. That if my brother was referring to he and his girlfriend spending longer than normal kissing goodnight on her front porch, that was making out. Um, my parents, probably just immediately because of their understanding of the terminology, envisioned my brother's bare ass showing to the whole neighborhood while we were screwing his girlfriend on the front porch. Words change, and the more scientific the terminology, the easier it is to stick to the meaning. But it was never on my part, and never has been in any of these shows, an effort to whitewash or an effort to patronize. To me, one of the things I like about Lenny Bruce, who I think spent the majority of his career being relatively unfunny, more provocative than humorous, I think I would say, which credit to George Carlin, he spent the majority of his career more humorous than merely provocative. But I definitely appreciate people who are willing to take a stand, to put it on the line, and to fight for the rights of people to make sure that regardless words, the ideas get out there. 
And for that reason, if none other, George Carlin is a different drummer for this day and age, despite having passed away so long ago. George Carlin died at the age of 71 in 2008, uh, succumbing to what had been, become a variety of health issues, including uh, the, the taxing uh, cost of multiple heart attacks and so forth. But when you think about 2008, it sometimes, especially in this pandemic period, time becomes a little bit fuzzy in challenging and difficult ways. 2008, on some levels, feels like a long time ago. George Carlin feels like he's been gone for a long time. On the other hand, 2008 feels like yesterday. Feels like, it, well, it doesn't feel like it's more than 13 years ago since George Carlin died. Let's put it that way. And in some ways, these memories from 1980 and arguing with staffers from the you know legislative offices of the Speaker of the House in the state of Oklahoma um, were so distant to be forgotten and yet flooded back in such a clear way that I have absolutely no problem, despite not having a copy of that particular you know, issue of the high school newspaper, I have no problem envisioning every detail of the cartoon saying, hey, psst, you want to buy a blender? Cheap? Because the state of Oklahoma for a period of time made it illegal to own a blender if you were a certain kind of person. And the state of Texas right now has made it possible for the court system, already understaffed due to, among other things, Mitch McConnell trying to make sure that President Barack Obama couldn't appoint any federal judges, or at least as few as possible, leaving vacancies for a decade that are only now just getting filled because they were in a big hurry to fill those judicial vacancies um, from you know the period of time that a Republican was the president. And it's exactly that form of judicial abuse, judicial abuse that I called out in September of 2016 as a constitutional crisis, and judicial abuse that has manifested itself now with the current sitting Supreme Court actually refusing to do the bare minimum of its job in preventing what is obviously a potential problem of the court being clogged with pointless and nuisance lawsuits that have been enabled by the wayward behavior, to put it gently, of a, of a legislature in Texas. We may have to do drastic things as this country to address this judicial abuse. I've not officially weighed in on how I feel about whether the Supreme Court should be expanded to, I don't know, say 13 judges instead of nine. But that is only an extreme remedy if we're honest with ourselves about acknowledging the extreme problem that decades of judicial abuse, judicial abuse by the Congress not doing its job, by legislatures in places like Texas and Oklahoma doing their job badly, have thrust upon the rest of us. So far, generally speaking, the Supreme Court has provided some kind of a safety net. The judiciary has provided some sort of a safety net. But what does it mean for us as Americans if that is no longer true? And when are we finally going to acknowledge a little, tiny, tiny piece of wisdom that a sophomore in high school provided to legislative offices in Oklahoma that that safety net is not free? For the person who has to go through all of the judicial abuse to get to what is a fair judgment that what the legislature did is wrong and that particular law is unconstitutional and previous judges ignoring it is not better than judicial activism. It is in many ways a more toxic form of judicial abuse. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.